Warning. This podcast contains graphic content that some listeners may find offensive or triggering. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the very first episode of Bad News Betty. I'm your host, Hannon, and I'll be delivering you your weekly bone-chilling true crime fix on what I like to call Murder Mondays. Now buckle up, because for our very first episode, I'm covering the murder of Angie Dodge. Our story takes place in the small town of Idaho Falls, Idaho, with a population of about 65,000 and a large Mormon community. It was known for being tight-knit, super neighborly, and a really safe place to live. Angie was 18 years old, the youngest of four, and the only daughter to parents Carol and Jack Dodge. She had recently graduated high school and was planning on attending Idaho State University in the fall. She was described by her friends as outgoing, loud, and really fun, and her mom described her as extremely intelligent, persistent, and a very independent young woman. On June 13, 1996, Angie didn't show up for her scheduled shift at the beauty supply store where she worked. This was really out of the norm for her, so two of her coworkers decided to head over to her apartment to check on her after she didn't answer multiple phone calls. Now, Angie had just moved into this apartment on her own about three weeks prior, and in fact, she was just at her parents the evening before. She was telling them how much she was enjoying being on her own as her mom held her tight, reminding her that she'd always be her baby. That's what makes this all the more devastating when her coworkers arrived at Angie's apartment around 11 a.m. and found the front door unlocked and slightly open. They went upstairs only to find a gruesome and bloody scene, and they immediately call 911. Once police arrive on scene, they found Angie's lifeless body on the ground face up next to her bed, only partially clothed. She had several cuts and 14 stab wounds, including what they described as a horrific wound to her neck, so her throat had actually been cut. One of the investigators claimed it was the worst thing he'd ever seen. It was like something out of a nightmare. The investigators were able to collect some DNA samples after they found semen on her body as well as some hair that didn't belong to Angie. With all these factors, it was obvious that she had been raped. Based on how brutally Angie was attacked, it was hard for investigators to initially determine if this was possibly done by someone she knew or not and if it was done by multiple people. But one thing they do know is that Angie put up one hell of a fight. Unfortunately, investigators were unable to find any matches to the DNA after collecting over 100 samples from various local males, and after six months and countless interviews, the police still had no firm suspects. They were being put under major pressure to solve this crime because remember, this is a small town where things like this just don't happen, so the residents are understandably on edge with this killer still on the loose. In January of 1997, the police received a tip and were told to look into Benjamin Hobbs. Ben was actually a friend of Angie's and even attended her funeral, but he had recently been arrested in Nevada for violently raping a woman at knife point. He understandably immediately becomes investigators' number one suspect, though he adamantly denied having anything to do with Angie's murder. Ben is even on tape asking if she was murdered the same night she was raped and stated if she was, then any DNA found in her body would prove him innocent. They collected Ben's DNA and then began looking into his friend groups and places that he frequented to get a better picture of who this guy was. And that's when they came across 20-year-old Christopher Tapp. Chris was described as not very ambitious, kind of a pothead, and he couch surfed a lot. They decided to bring him in for questioning, and it was at this point they learned that Chris was actually with Angie at a gathering the night before she was murdered. 
Chris, like Ben, denies having any involvement right off the bat, and he was released. Investigators then decided to bring Chris in for a couple more interviews and ended up subjecting him to a series of questioning and polygraph testing that would last a total of 60 hours over the next couple days. After being threatened with the possibility of life in prison or the death penalty, investigators lied to Chris and told him that Ben had already implicated him in the murder, which they were legally allowed to do in this case, but they said that he could probably get a lesser sentence if he would just admit that Ben had taken the lead on killing Angie and then threatened Chris if he didn't participate. So that's what Chris did. And he said that the reason for Ben supposedly murdering Angie is because she was trying to break up his marriage. When the DNA results finally came back on January 18th, neither Ben nor Chris were a match. So now investigators were looking for Chris to give them the name of a third accomplice who would match the DNA. And the name that Chris gave them was Jeremy Sargis. Chris changed his story again and said that it was only Ben and Jeremy who raped and killed Angie and that he was just a bystander in this. Jeremy is livid that his friend would name him in connection with the crime, and he also immediately shuts down any possibility of his involvement and told the investigators they were just making fools out of themselves at this point. Luckily, Jeremy knew he had the right to remain silent and decided to stop speaking with investigators so as not to incriminate himself any further like Chris had done. Jeremy did consent to give a DNA sample, and his wasn't a match either. He had an alibi for the night Angie was murdered as well. Chris then tries to bring another guy named Mike into the story, who apparently he hardly knew. I'm not exactly sure who he is or his full name. It's a little confusing. Um, and at this point, Chris's story has changed over four times. So I'm seeing a lot of red flags. I don't know about y'all. And these investigators are so hyper-focused on the wrong people. And I think it's just because they feel so much pressure to solve and close this case. All of these interviews and polygraph tests are taped, and if you go back and watch them, you can see this progression of Chris initially confidently denying any involvement to slowly cracking under the pressure of hours and hours of interrogation with little rest and food. He slowly changes his story under the manipulation of the investigators, and you can see how he starts to doubt his own memory. Investigators on the tapes are literally walking him through their theories of what they think he and his supposed accomplices did, and they're completely contaminating the interrogation and getting him to agree with all these accusations. You can find clips of the tapes on Google, and it's just mind-boggling. It turns out that every single polygraph test that was done, which was five to be exact, stated that Chris was being deceptive, even though he was told that he passed them. So again, they're manipulating him into thinking he was actually telling the truth about having a hand in killing Angie. With his confession on tape, police arrested Chris, and by the time his trial had started, he had been subjected to over 100 hours of brutal questioning. But again, there's still one problem. They didn't have the person who matched the DNA found on Angie's body. Again, Ben and Jeremy's DNA also didn't match, and they never even hinted at having anything to do with the crime, so police really didn't have anything on them except for this sketchy, ever-changing confession from Chris. Carol, Angie's mother, was there every day of the trial hoping to see the man who she believed was partially responsible for her daughter's murder put behind bars. A young woman named Destiny Osborne was called as a witness during the trial, and she claimed that she was at a party a few days after Angie's murder, and she heard Ben Hobbs tell Chris that he had killed Angie because she owed him money for methamphetamine. Destiny also admitted to being high on some sort of drug herself when she supposedly overheard this, and Angie was never known to do any types of drugs. 
Another witness claimed that Chris couldn't have had anything to do with Angie's murder because he had spent the entire night with another woman, and this was corroborated after his ex-girlfriend confirmed she caught them in bed together the next morning. However, other witnesses state that the date he was with this woman and the date of the murder didn't line up, so two different dates apparently. The stories that come from this case are all over the place and it's a little hard to keep up with. The jury were also shown the tapes of Chris confessing, of course, and although Chris's attorney tried to prove that this was in fact a coerced confession, in most people's minds at the time, innocent people simply didn't confess to crimes they didn't commit. We now know that's not true, and improper investigation tactics can lead to the persuasion of false admission of guilt. After 13 hours of deliberation, the jury ended up finding now 21-year-old Christopher Tapp guilty as an accomplice to the murder and rape of Angie Dodge, and he was sentenced to 40 years to life in prison. Angie's family was upset that Chris didn't receive the death penalty, or at the very least, life without parole, and they still weren't satisfied that the mystery man who left his DNA behind had not been caught. They were under the impression that Chris knew who the DNA belonged to, but he just wouldn't say because he was so cruel. Carol decided that she would investigate herself when police didn't have any further leads. She was fierce and determined to fully solve her daughter's case. She went to the police station every single day asking for updates. She would comb through all the police reports and documents that had been accumulated, and she would even drive the streets at night surveilling for anything she thought was suspicious and would question drug dealers and harass people that Chris had previously named as accomplices that had been ruled out. Kara's a little crazy, but she was so down to solve her daughter's case. Skip ahead to 2007, Carol decided she was going to study all 60 hours of Chris's interrogation tapes. She came to realize that he really didn't seem to know much about her daughter's murder until police fed him information on it. For example, the polygrapher asked Chris, where did he stick her at? He, as in Chris's accomplice, and Chris answered, in the living room. The polygrapher responded, no, she was killed in the bedroom. And Chris would agree and then implement this piece of information throughout the rest of his story. She knew something wasn't right here, so she tracked down Chris's new public defense lawyer, and to his surprise, she told him that she now thought Chris was innocent, and she wanted to work with him to try to find her daughter's true killer. They both reached out to an expert in wrongful convictions to review the confession tapes. One of the biggest things he noticed was the polygrapher telling Chris that he could end up in the gas chamber if he didn't cooperate and basically tell them what they wanted to hear. This would scare any 20-year-old. I mean, this would scare the hell out of me, honestly. This is when someone from the Idaho Innocence Project got involved. And the Innocence Project is a great organization. It's dedicated to exonerating wrongfully convicted people through DNA testing and reforming the criminal justice system. They all determined that the psychological and coercive tactics that investigators used were really inappropriate and led to his false confession. They decided to run the DNA collected all the way back in 1996 through the CODIS database, but unfortunately, there was no match. For those of you who may not know, CODIS, or the Combined DNA Index System, is a U.S. national DNA database run by the FBI, which contains the DNA profiles of certain offenders depending on what state you live in. Typically, it's sex offenders and other types of convicted felons. The initial investigators from this case, which had now retired, seemed to really believe that they had caught at least one of the perpetrators and stood by their police work. When the new investigators tried to reach out to them, they refused to respond. They were either really convinced that they put away a guilty man or they didn't want to admit to their severe mistake. Even Carol, through her grief, could see that this man was innocent. 
Chris's attorney ended up filing five appeals for post-conviction relief, which is a procedure that allows a defendant in a criminal case to bring more evidence or raise additional issues in a case after a judgment has been made. With valid grounds, post-conviction relief can help you obtain a fair resolution in your case. Unfortunately, all five appeals were denied. But finally, in 2017, Chris and his attorney were able to make a deal. The murder charge would stay in place, but the rape charge would be removed because, again, his DNA didn't match that at the crime scene, and Chris would be taken off the sex offender list and released from prison. There's a really great picture of Carol and Chris, and they're holding hands as he exits the courthouse a free man after serving over 20 years in prison. However, Carol and Chris's attorneys still weren't satisfied. They wanted to continue looking for Angie's true killer and get Chris fully exonerated. The new team of investigators at Idaho Falls Police Department decided to take on the case with a fresh start, and luckily for this team, genetic genealogy and the use of familial DNA had progressed significantly. Carol reached out to a world-renowned genetic genealogist named Cece Moore for help with support from the police department. They decided to allow testing for familial DNA through Parabon Nanolabs. This is done by doing a deliberate search of a DNA database that you may have heard of or even used yourself, Ancestry.com. They use a specialized software that's separate from CODIS to detect and statistically rank a list of potential candidates in the DNA database who be close biological relatives such as a parent, uncle, sibling, child, etc. And from there they can narrow down who the DNA they've collected belongs to. They can even give possible physical characteristics for the person whose DNA they have. Fun fact, familial DNA is actually how the Golden State Killer was eventually caught, but I'm sure most of you true crimers already knew that. Initially, they got a hit that was only a 61% match, which would be a pretty distant relative, but they didn't give up and they did major research into this whole family tree. They were able to narrow it down to six possible males in the family. Five of the six males lived over a thousand miles away from the crime scene in 1996, but one of them, Michael Ussery, lived in Idaho, only two hours away from Idaho Falls. Now let me direct you back to when Chris tried to implicate a random Mike as a fourth accomplice in Angie's murder when the DNA that was tested didn't match him, Ben, or Jeremy. So it's kind of an interesting little tidbit. Investigators set their sights on Mike and they secretly trailed him while waiting for him to discard something with his DNA on it so they could use it to test against their sample that was collected all the way back in 1996. They noticed while following him in his vehicle that the tags on his car were expired, so they used this to their advantage and they got local law enforcement to pull him over and administer a breathalyzer test. And just in case the DNA sample from the suspect wasn't sufficient, they decided to also try and collect a sample from his son whom they could also get a really close DNA match from. Investigators followed the son to a bank where they were able to collect a large amount of saliva he spit out while dipping on his way inside. They were so sure that this would give them the answers they were looking for, but unfortunately, their hard work didn't pay off. The samples weren't a match, and it in fact eliminated all six of the initial possibilities. So the genealogist went back to the drawing board to figure out where the misstep was. She went back up and down that family tree and ended up finding a son from a marriage that had not been reported initially who was carrying his stepfather's surname. And guess where he was living in 1996? That's right, Idaho Falls. This new lead's name was Brian Drips, and what's even crazier is that Brian lived right across the street from Angie. At the time of the murder, Brian was 30 years old, a few days before his 31st birthday. He had a baby on the way, but he was going through a divorce. 
He didn't have any major criminal record, just a couple misdemeanors here and there, and he wasn't on police radar at all. In May of 2019, investigators began to surveil Brian where he currently lived in Caldwell, Idaho. They were able to collect his DNA from a cigarette butt that he threw out his car window. And guys, it was a match. After 23 years, the true killer of Angie Dodge had finally been identified. And on May 15th, 2019, Brian was brought down to the Caldwell Police Department to be interviewed where he would eventually confess to raping and killing Angie. Brian said he had gone across the street, acting on his own with a knife and the intention of raping Angie. He also admitted that he was drunk and high on cocaine at the time. He said he held the knife to her throat while he was raping her and it cut her. But remember earlier when I said her throat had been cut? She was actually nearly decapitated, so it's a little more than a cut there, Brian. He also told the police he didn't mean to do it. It just happened. He said once he had finished, he went to the bathroom, washed his gloves that were covered in blood, and then walked back across the street to his own home like nothing had happened. He was actually questioned by police a few days after Angie's body was found. Just the normal questioning of neighbors to find out if they had seen anything suspicious. He told the officer that he was out drinking that night and came home around 11.30 p.m. but then went back out. He said he returned home around 3 a.m. extremely drunk and couldn't remember any vehicles or people in the area that seemed out of place. And that was that. Brian Drips pled guilty in June of this year at the age of 53, and he was sentenced to 20 years to life for the murder and rape of Angie Dodge. It may have taken over 20 years, but justice was finally served. Chris Tapp, of course, was fully exonerated, although nothing could possibly make up for the years he spent locked up. Chris went on to say, quote, because of what the Idaho Falls police did to me, I lost the opportunity to raise a family, pursue a career, and to share in the most basic freedoms that we all live for. I continue to live every day with the nightmare of the 22 years the Idaho Falls police stole from me. Chris ended up getting paid a $1.2 million settlement from the state of Idaho due to his wrongful conviction. Let this be a lesson to everyone. Know your rights and get a lawyer. Thank y'all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of Bad News Betty. I'd love to hear your feedback and let me know what you think about the use of non-criminal databases like 23andMe and Ancestry.com to look for familial DNA matches to help solve cases like these. You can email me directly at badnewsbettypodcast at gmail.com. I'll put the link down in the show notes. You can also watch the ABC 2020 episode about this case on Hulu. It's season 43, episode 17. And please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts if you feel so inclined. I'll be back next Murder Monday with a brand new episode. Until then, please only kill them with kindness and take care. Uh.